Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. If you have that original contrast or that initial contrast between the original free and independent existence of our nations and the invading system claiming a right of domination coming into our territories, that's the same contrast we live with to this day. On today's program, an in-depth conversation with Indian Country's preeminent legal scholar and one of the world's foremost authorities on the doctrine of Christian discovery regarding the recent removals of Father Junipero Sierra statues throughout the state of California, the recent U.S. Supreme Court McGirt decision affirming the treaty rights of the Muscogee Creek Nation, the Indigenous Black Lives Matter movement, and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright The lone blue elk in the black of night You can hear, you can hear The whisper in the valley mm-hmm. And you know when come a cunny blows To the bar who drum With the recent removals of the Father Junipero Sierra statues, the U.S. Supreme Court's McGirt decision affirming the Muscogee Creek Treaty rights, the Indigenous Black Lives Matter solidarity movements, and the recent retirement of offensive mascots and the movement to reclaim and change the names of offensive places throughout the United States and indigenous nations, I sit down with one of Indian Country's preeminent legal scholars and one of the world's foremost authorities on the doctrine of Christian discovery to discuss how does the doctrine of Christian discovery relate to all of these recent events. Stephen Newcomb is from the Shawnee Lenape Nations and in 2008 published the book Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. In 1992, he and Virgil Kilstrait from the Oglala Lakota Nation co-founded the Indigenous Law Institute. Stephen Newcomb has been studying and writing about U.S. federal Indian law and policy since the 1980s, and in 2015, he and Sheldon Wolfchild of the Dakota Nation completed a documentary movie based on his book, Pagans in the Promised Land, titled The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Domination Code. And now, part one of a two-part interview with Stephen Newcomb, I start by asking him his thoughts on the recent removals of the Father Junipero Sierra statues throughout the state of California, the symbolic representations of the crimes that he represents, and how that relates to the doctrine of Christian discovery or the doctrine of dominion. And now, Stephen Newcomb. Well, I think that the context of the conversation about the removal of statues needs to be set right at the get-go, meaning the contrast between 
the original free and independent existence of all of our nations and peoples throughout this continent, throughout the hemisphere, and the system of domination that was brought here by the monarchies of Christendom back during the time of Columbus and afterwards. And so the contrast between that original free existence and the claim of a right of domination Mm -hmm. based on Vatican documents of the 15th century and various assertions of of sovereignty and and so forth by the monarchies of Christendom, that is the contrast we ought to be focused on. Once we understand that, we can understand that those statues are symbols of that system of domination that was brought here as a form of invasion, the initial invasion of our lands and of our nations and peoples, and all of the destruction and the horrible devastation that occurred as a result of all that. And that that is what we ought to be focused on, in my view. And so I've somewhat changed or maybe just become more specific about my emphasis regarding the doc, what has been called the doctrine of discovery that I prefer to make sure that I'm referring to it as the doctrine of domination. It's the claim of a right of domination. And so that's that's such an important uh, point. And when you talk about um, the doctrine of domination, um, there's actually been, um, as, as you mentioned briefly, uh, some recent judicial activity, and I'm speaking specifically about uh, the McGirt case that received a lot of media attention, both um, in settler colonial mass media's uh, landscape, but also indigenous media, and, um, and of course, uh, the incomplete narrative, to put it diplomatically, about the McGirt decision. But um, the doctrine of discovery is referenced also in the McGirt decision. I was wondering if you could make the connection of that for our listeners. Well, the McGirt decision is McGirt versus Oklahoma. It had to do with criminal prosecution, uh, criminal jurisdiction uh, in Oklahoma or what's now called Oklahoma, and whether the, the, the issue before the court was whether the, the reservation of the Creek Nation continues to exist today or was it done away with at the point of uh, what's called statehood. The admission of of Oklahoma into the Union, I guess, as they call it. And what um, the majority said in that decision is that the Creek Reservation continues to exist because Congress did not specifically disestablish the reservation through some kind of direct action legislatively. And the um, minority decision under the Chief Justice Roberts and and several others that uh, joined him would have actually put a very specific, I guess, capstone, you might say, on the genocidal process of attempting to destroy those nations over there by saying that they they were basically disestablished and that the reservations were done away with. So at least in the case of the Creek Reservation, as as Justice Gorsuch is referring to it, he says that it continues to exist to this day. And so that is being considered to be the decision that a very large sector, a very large portion of the state of Oklahoma is really still the Creek Reservation. And 
So for purposes, as some news reports have said, for the purpose of criminal prosecution, it is still the Creek Reservation. Now, interestingly, when you go into the treaty or several treaties with the Creek Nation, between the Creek Nation and the United States, what it refers to is a country, that the country for the Creek Nation will be established in the West. And so it's interesting that although Gorsuch quotes that language from the treaty, he then kind of massages or works with the language in such a way to use an analogy to say, well, it's really a reservation. It's not a, it's not a country. I mean, he doesn't get say that it's not a country. He just transitions to the word reservation and makes that the focus of his decision and whether that's part of Indian country. And when you look at the definition of Indian country, it says that it's a place under the jurisdiction of the United States. And there's always been the presumption within the federal Indian law system, uh, going back to Johnson versus McIntosh from 1823, but you wouldn't really notice that unless the enterprising researchers such as my friend uh, Peter DeRico were, (laughs) unless that researcher goes to the actual reference point in the McGirt decision, which is a textbook that uh, Justice Gorsuch refers to, and unless you look that up, you would not see that the uh, decision is actually going to and citing to the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling, which is, of course, where the the um, uh, doctrine of discovery is embedded. And um, so that that had to do with the discussion of Indian country. And he talked about the um, ownership of non-Indian settlers being able to own land on a reservation. And Gorsuch wrote, uh, it isn't hard to see why that would be the case. And then he explained that federal homesteader patents uh, transferred legal title, quote-unquote, to Creek land. And then he says, but no one thinks this diminished the United States' claim to sovereignty. To accomplish that would require an active session the transfer of a sovereign claim from one nation to another, unquote. And then uh, Justice Gorsuch cited to 3E Washburn, American Law of Real Property, asterisk 524. So what that is uh, referring to, based upon the wonderful research of my friend uh, Peter DeRico, a legal studies professor now retired from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and a, a Yale Law School graduate and all that good stuff. But anyway, he, he found the reference was to Emory Washburn's 1868, a treatise on the American law of real property, and it was a discussion of title by public grant. And and then it was referring to the discovery and settlement of this country by Europeans And then it states, nor has any title beyond the right of occupation been recognized in the native tribes by any European governments or their successors, the colonies, the states, or the United States. 
talk about that and its implications for indigenous peoples, because with the judicial decision, right, a lot of um, American mass media, you know, reported uh, the outcome of the case is that, you know, uh, half of the state of Oklahoma is going to be returned back to, you know, indigenous peoples, right, not even mentioning the Muscogee uh, Nation. So I was wondering if you could maybe just kind of unpack that, because I think about Right. When you talk about the, the doctrine of domination and this notion of, of property rights, and I think about some of Robert Miller's work and, and your work, right, that notion of right discovery, the, the right of discovery, the right of occupation, right, and then that, that right of yeah. preemption, and, and this whole notion of rights, right, divine rights, civil rights, mm-hmm. and human rights, and indigenous peoples. So can you unpack that for our listeners so they understand what the impl- real implications are of this case in addition to what you've already expressed. Sure. Well, th- th- what will help that discussion is to just complete the little bit of a quote here uh, of that section from em- Emery Washburn's a Treatise on the American Law of Real Property, mm-hmm. where the author says, the law in this respect seems to have been uniform with all the Christian nations mm. that planted colonies here. They recognize no ownership of lands, but the text says no season of lands, which means ownership, on the part of Indian dwellers upon it. And then he says the sovereignty and general property of the soil were claimed by right of discovery, unquote. What's important about that is to realize that the text at that point references to Johnson versus McIntosh. So Justice Gorsuch has actually embedded the doctrine of discovery and domination into the recent McGirt versus Oklahoma ruling, but he's, he hasn't done it explicitly by putting this kind of language right up, up front and, okay. uh, in, in highlights. He hasn't highlighted that. He's left it just as a kind of a cryptic reference to this very obscure uh, textbook, Law of Real Property, from 1868. Now, the reason why this is important is uh, also because the word sovereignty and property are both synonyms for the word domination. Mm. And the word sovereignty, as identified by Jonathan Havercroft in his book, Captives of Sovereignty, he defines it based upon an examination of several political philosophers as the um, an unjust form of political domination that limits human freedom. That's his definition of sovereignty. And then one of the definitions of property is despotic dominion, which is, of course, a form of domination. And that was uh, also defined by a couple of uh, property law professors in, in a, another textbook as being defined in this manner. The first establishment of socially approved physical domination over some part of the natural world. So when you get into the, into the real specific examination of the terminology, mm-hmm. what you find is that the word discovery is simply a mask, it's a cover term, mm-hmm. a euphemism for a claim of a right of domination, which takes us back to the context that I, that I identified at the outset of this interview. 
and you're listening to American Indian Airwaves, part one of a two-part interview with Stephen Newcomb from the Shawnee Lenape Nations. He's speaking on the doctrine of Christian discovery or the doctrine of Christian dominion and how it relates to the recent removals of the Father Junipero Sierra statues throughout the state of California, the recent U.S. Supreme Court McGirt decision case affirming Muscogee Creek Nation's treaty rights, the Indigenous Black Lives Matter solidarity movement, and the movement afoot to retire sports mascots and reclaim those public spaces that embody offensive names and statues throughout the United States. And now back to the interview with Stephen Newcomb. And how much of that connects to the Cheryl decision in 2005 and and maybe for our listeners that don't remember that court case um, uh, explain what that is and then what's how does the McGirt case relate to the Cheryl case well uh, it's in the line the exact line of cases right so Gorsuch uh, is using a 19th century law textbook to reference discovery. Uh, It's actually, when you go into that textbook, you find it's referencing Christian nations, which goes back to the doctrine of Christian discovery and a claim of a right of domination by Christian nations. That's a lot more subtle, I guess you might say, than Justice Ginsburg, who in the city of Sherrill versus Oneida Indian Nation of New York in 2005 said the following in footnote number one, under the doctrine of discovery, fee title to the lands occupied by Indians when the colonists arrived became vested in the sovereign, first the discovering European nation and later the original states and the United States. Now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not use Christian in that reference to the doctrine, but nonetheless, it is still there in the, in the record. And so it's, it's the continued use of the foundation, the conceptual foundation, the foundation of ideas and arguments that was put together by the early intellectuals of the United States in crafting all of this framework together. What's important to note is that when Chief Justice Marshall in the 1823 Johnson versus McIntosh ruling looks at the documents that substantiate what he's saying, they go back to the various charters of England. So, for example, the John Cabot Charter, which talks about the, the, um, with the Cabots having the authorization to seek out, discover, and find the islands, countries, regions of the heathens and infidels that before this time have been unknown to all Christian people. And so Marshall, in the Johnson ruling, takes that phrase Christian people and puts italics on it, and then he contrasts that with the phrase natives who were heathens, taking that language from the, from the Cabot Charter. And so uh, when you look at that Cabot Charter, you find in the Latin, the original Latin version of that Cabot Charter, you find several different uses of the term subjugation in Latin, different conjugations of that verb to subjugate, but also you find the phrase titulum dominium, which is a domination title, and then jurisdiction. So this is the kind of uh, etymological uh, source tracing, I guess you might call it, to go back to the origins of these ancient documents that are still being used in 2020 against our nations and peoples, but it's all done very covertly 
and most people don't have enough understanding and haven't done the work necessary to to be able to trace all this stuff. And so it's it's a, a framework of domination that's still being used today uh, against our nations and peoples on the basis of Christianity and the Bible. And the other thing I want to mention about that is that in 1954, in a case called Tihatan Indians versus the United States, which had to do with uh, the Tihatan Band of Clinkett Indians and whether they should be paid financial compensation for a theft of their timber by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and giving that timber to a logging company in Alaska, the ruling, or excuse me, the legal brief drafted by the U.S. Justice Department attorneys mm-hmm. used the argument that I'm talking about, and it referenced Vatican papal bulls from the 15th century. It referenced the Bible. It referenced Genesis 128 and the Book of Psalms. It, it used the argument that they should not receive monetary compensation for a taking of their timber because the Christian nations of Europe had located or discovered the lands of heathens and infidels. That's a religious argument. And it's not some side argument. It's the main argument of the U.S. government to the Supreme Court in 1954. And then the Supreme Court uh, actually upheld that argument in 1955, the following year. So this is a very sinister and amazing arrangement of information and ideas and arguments as basically a weapon system to use against our nations and peoples. And it's, uh, to me, I find it just absolutely fascinating that they've gotten away with it for this long. Steve, you, uh, when we talk about, um, you know, these, these federal Indian law court cases, I think about, right, this notion of judicial imperialism or judicial domination or the settler colonials uh, judicial system weaponize, right, to rein- reinforce this intergenerational pattern of domination. And with Johnson v. McIntosh, um, part of the kind of codification of the doctrine of dominion, right, is that indigenous peoples were given, quote unquote, Christianity and, and civilization. And and when we go back to talking about the papal bulls, really this the beginning of uh, theological fascism, I believe, the term I used the last time we spoke, and this notion of othering. And I, I bring that up because there's a lot of conversations right now about right, the United States and racism. And, and again, this absent part of that conversation is the doctrine of discovery. And I was wondering if for our listeners, maybe link this notion of um, the doctrine of discovery and uh, the United States and we talk about racism because I think of um, Augustine's right just war theory of othering right the othering being the the infidels the Saracens the pagans and how does that relate to this conversation today about race well racism is obviously uh, about power and it's about the abuse of power mm-hmm. and uh, forcing uh, people under a system of domination using their skin color or their physical characteristics, the kind of physicality that they have, their physical appearance is a basis for uh, abusing them and subjecting them to oppression and abuse and so forth. De- dehumanization is the right. uh, very succinct term for that, to, to regard them as less than human, less than fully human. 
that's simply another example of domination. So if you have the big category being domination and dehumanization, and then you look for the examples of that, racism is one of those examples. And this business about othering is, it has to do with a people, let's say in the case of the colonizers, Mm -hmm. coming to a shore, whether it be the shoreline of Africa or the shoreline of Great Turtle Island, here in what's now commonly called North America, and then those colonizers, the invaders, coming ashore and using their ideas and their words and projecting their ideas and their words, their metaphors, onto the people who are already existing there Mm -hmm. and then pretending that they are not doing that. So they, they act as if they're looking out at Oh, they're they're look at those heathens, look at those infidels, look at those pagans, and look at those unsavage, uh, uncivilized folks. And so, look at those uncivilized folks. And when you examine that, what's actually happening is that those are projections from their own language system onto those pre-existing peoples. In other words, the peoples that are already existing there before they show up. Then they act as if they have not projected anything onto those people. They act as if those people are those things that they're calling them independent of their own language. But it's actually a product of their mentality and their language system that they then use as a means of abusing those people because they projected those words onto them and those judgments that go with those words. So there's this way in which the superiority is being constructed through the very use of those words and those ideas and the arguments that go with them. Connect that to recent um, solidarity work, if you will, of indigenous peoples and uh, Black Lives Matter and and the conversations that we're hearing, uh, at least out in the in the media landscape, right? We certainly, you know, indigenous peoples are out there in in solidarity uh, with Black Lives Matter. And again, when we talk about the history of the land, it seems to start at a very certain point where indigenous peoples are are not central at the starting point of the conversation. So, as far as you can kind of put that into con- what you just said into conversation with the indigenous uh, Black Lives Matter and person of color uh, movements? Well, there's there are a number of ways that that could be approached as far as an answer. The, the thing is that when you get into the original nations of this continent and what's now called the United States, you get into the issue of land. Right. And so that's a very threatening type of, of situation for the United States. I think that there is a way in which the examination of indigenous peoples' issues or the issues of original nations and peoples goes to the very uh, foundation of the United States. I mean, certainly slavery does also. Okay. However, slavery, they say, well, that was ended, and so that was long ago, and it's, it, it's, most people say that's a terrible thing, and it shouldn't have happened, and, and so forth and so on. But with, with our nations and peoples, it's ongoing. So this whole matter of property, of land, of all of their, their claim of a right of domination, it's ongoing today. It's not something that went away. In 1954, the very same year, that I discussed with regard to the 
U.S. legal brief in Tihitan Indians. That was the same year that the Supreme Court overturned Plessy versus Ferguson and uh, overturned the separate but equal doctrine in U.S. law. At the same time that they were doing that, they were reaffirming the doctrine of Christian discovery and domination through that U.S. legal brief, and then the and then the year later, a year later, I should say, that the Supreme Court actually upheld that in the Tihitan ruling. So, in a sense, you can say, well, they're they're the same, but they they have uh, pretty significant differences in terms of context and what the stakes are for the United States in terms of its overall property system and and what I think perhaps what's at stake for for them as a power structure. We are talking about the American empire after all. And the United States was founded as an empire. George Washington referred to it as our infant empire. Uh, Chief Justice Marshall referred to it as this our widespreading empire. The Supreme Court in Loughborough versus Blake in 1820 and in Downs v. Bidwell in 1901 referred to the United States as the American Empire. So it's not any mystery that that is the case, but it's not generally focused upon. And the word democracy is focused upon, but when you go and you look at the the founders and the writings of those men that are called founders, they were threatened by the idea of democracy. They didn't want the masses to be in control. The masses uh, were a potential threat to the power structure, and the United States was founded by bankers and lawyers and plantation owners and land speculators and slave owners and and uh, who also happened to be uh, white, I mean, in terms of a European categorization, right? right? So the whole business with racism has to do with the color spectrum, white, red, brown, yellow, and so forth. It has to do with the use of the color spectrum as a means of oppression. Right. And the white is on top and everyone else is down below that, perhaps in a type of ranking. So, I mean, you'd have to decide what the ranking would be among all those other color groups. But if you look at the book by Theodore Allen called The Invention of the White Race, Mm -hmm. he shows very specifically that the term white was a category devised as a means of creating a kind of divide and conquer or divide and dominate scenario because in Virginia where the term was first used in 1691 it was used as a way to keep the labor the masses of labor divided Mm. and so they didn't want the the elite at that time did not want the masses of labor to come together in one consolidated uh, body so to speak or effort to pose any kind of threat to the power structure. So they created the the use of the color spectrum and the idea of race came after that. But um, that that's the kind of the some of the origin of the use of, of racism against uh, people, people of color to use the common expression. And um, what's interesting, if you go back to the Vatican Papal Bulls, you cannot find reference to the word Europe or European. Uh, you don't find white or black or those kinds of terms in the papal bulls. You find uh, it was a medieval Christian worldview, and the world was divided within that worldview between Christians and non-Christians. 
And so the idea of the doctrine of discovery at that time was the idea that the first Christians to locate the lands of non-Christians, heathens, infidels, pagans, uh, and in those kinds of terms, had the right to claim a right of domination in that place simply because they were Christians or represented a Christian monarch. And so that's that's a difference in uh, terminology over time. And I will say this, that a lot of federal Indian law attorneys, I think, have done a fair amount of damage to the telling of history because they have replaced the word Christian with the word European mm. and pretended that those are equivalent terms when, in fact, they're not. The, the actual terminology in Johnson versus McIntosh, there is the use of the word European and so forth, but uh, or the nations of Europe, but it very specifically zeroes in on that Christian terminology as contrasted with the native story heathens, which is all part of a Christian biblical terminology. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. That concludes part one of a two-part in-depth interview with Stephen Newcomb from the Shawnee and Lenape Nations. He's a longtime legal scholar and one of the world's foremost authorities on the doctrine of Christian discovery and Christian dominion. He's the author of Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, and completed a documentary movie based on the book with Sheldon Wolfchild titled The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Domination Code. Stephen Newcomb was speaking on how the doctrine of discovery and the doctrine of Christian dominion relates to the recent events of the removal of Father Junipero Sierra statues throughout the state of California, the U.S. Supreme Court's recent McGirt decision case affirming the Muscogee Creek Nation's treaty rights, the indigenous Black Lives Matter movement, and more. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Fine. 
Star Walker by Buffy St. Marie off the album Medicine Songs here on American Indian Airwaves. In the second segment of today's program, we commence with part two of our two-part interview with Stephen Newcomb. He's from the Shawnee and Lenape Nations. He's a legal scholar and one of the world's foremost authorities on the doctrine of Christian discovery or Christian dominion. He's the author of the book, Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. He, along with Virgil Kilstrait, co-founded in 1992 the Indigenous Law Institute and along with Sheldon Wolfchild completed a documentary movie based on the book Pagans in the Promised Land titled The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Domination Code. In the second part of our interview, we continue with the conversation with Stephen Newcomb regarding recent events and how the doctrine of Christian discovery or dominion relates to the removal of the statues of Father Junipero Sierra, founder of the Alta Spanish Mission System, the U.S. Supreme Court's recent McGirt decision affirming the treaty rights of the Muscogee Creek Nation, the indigenous Black Lives Matter solidarity movements, conversations of race today and what it means for the future in terms of decolonization and the removal or the retirement of offensive racial mascots and the movement to reclaim spaces whereby offensive mascots and name place markers exist. And now part two of our conversation. And now part two of our conversation with Stephen Newcomb. Steve, we were talking about this absence of the doctrine of discovery in the context of recent events. And before the break, we were talking about colonization, whiteness, and this notion of labor. And and with labor, especially in a historical context, uh, we have to talk about this othering, right? And how uh, there's a, a inscribing of labor and that requires this dehumanization, objectification of, um, of indigenous peoples and enslaved African people. And I was wondering if you could maybe uh, talk about that more and connect it to, you know, this conversation that we're having today of, of race and how the doctrine of discovery fits into this conversation. And then what does it mean to decolonize and to re-indigenize for future generation purposes? Well, that's a very involved question, uh, multi-layered and multifaceted. But yeah. I will say this, that there are different kinds of labor, right? right. And so you can have slave labor, uh, you can have um, hired labor, you can have the notion of land plus labor equals capital. Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea of capitalism based upon an initial colonization of a given place and so forth. I think that your your question is probably uh, a good way to transition into maybe the need to have a deeper examine examination of these issues philosophically. Right. In other words, to I think that a lot of this information needs to be examined in great detail, and there are those people certainly who have done tremendous work in that area in the in the right. areas of economics and so forth. But it's, you know, for for indigenous nations and peoples or original nations and peoples, 
it has to do with the the land. It always comes back to land. But then that's always the, the focus of the empire as well, right? right? And of the society as a whole. So you, you have the uh, distinction between the land owners and those who have their labor. Right. And it go, can go back to the time of the barons, the big mm-hmm. land barons and the enclosure of the commons to cut people off from the commons to cut people off the land so that they then can only support themselves primarily by means of their labor because they don't have ownership of land, which goes into property. And the the idea of the first establishment of socially approved physical domination over some area of the earth. And then once you have that established uh, power or that established domination in that place, those people that have none of that have merely the ability to sell their bodies or their labor Mm. to those who have that power. And so those are the kinds of relationships that ought to be examined in more more detail. And of course, then also you have the banking system, the use of usury and and different uh, means of getting people entrapped into a debt cycle where they are even further disempowered. So it, it really requires a fundamental examination of the whole basis of the society of the United States. And I look at it this way. When you take uh, some of the main themes of the society of the United States, such as civilization, that is called the forcing of a particular cultural pattern on a population to which it is foreign. That's from the Webster's Third New International Dictionary. Then you you have state which according to Max Weber is the relation of men dominating men in order for the state to exist. The dominated must submit themselves to the authority claimed by the powers that be. And uh, then you have sovereignty, which I already mentioned Jonathan Havercroft's definition of that, which is an unjust form of political domination that limits human freedom. And then you have ascendancy, which is a word you find in the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling when he says that the people of Europe were able to consider the um, the character and religion of the inhabitants of the continent uh, were considered to be subject to the superior genius of Europe, meaning of the Europeans, and that they had the, the ability to claim a right of ascendancy. Then you look at that word, and it means governing power, um, controlling influence, domination. Mm-hmm. And then you have a property, which we've already talked about, and empire and dominion. So dominion is domination. So what I'm getting at here is you have seven terms of domination that are repeated over and over and over again. Right. But because they're not the same word domination, they're civilization, state, sovereignty, ascendancy, dominion, property, and empire, it appears that you're talking about seven different things, but in fact, you're talking about the same thing by means of seven different terms or seven different forms of vocabulary. And you could keep multiplying that. I could give you many other examples. What that all adds up to is an overall system of domination that has not really been understood as such. And people have been I guess hoodwinked would be a good term for it, conditioned to believe in kind of a fanciful notion of what the United States was at the Mm get-go, but it was really always designed by the wealthy elite for the benefit of the wealthy elite and um, to the detriment of everyone else. 
and um, were there were there tons of people who were able to establish a way of life? Sure, of course. But what happened to our nations and peoples as a result of that? Well, we were on the receiving end of that system of domination, and we still are to this day. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have the worst health statistics, the worst uh, income statistics, all the other kind of um, factors or indicators of being dominated and dehumanized for centuries. And, of course, not just our nations and peoples, but there are other folks that uh, over the course of the life of the American empire have been similarly subjected to these kinds of destructive dehumanizing patterns. So what do we do about that and how do we transition to a beneficial way of life that's good for everyone that's based upon you know, a, a way in which we have respectful communication and we have positive interactions, not based upon dehumanizing or dominating other people or other life forms. That's, that's the huge challenge that we face, I think. And you're listening to an interview with Stephen Newcomb from the Shawnee Lenape Nations, a legal scholar and one of the world's foremost authorities on the doctrine of Christian discovery and Christian dominion. He's speaking on the doctrine of discovery and Christian dominion and how it relates to a spectrum of recent events from the removal of Father Junipero Serra statues throughout the state of California, the U.S. Supreme Court's McGirt decision affirming the treaty rights of the Muscogee Creek Nation, the Indigenous Black Lives Matter, Solidarity Movement, Conversations of Race, plus more here on American Indian Airwaves. And now back to the interview. Steve, I was thinking about uh, what you've written about in Pagans in the Promised Land when you talk about the uh, cognitive development and language and and I believe something like 60% or just over 60% of the English language comes from Latin, right? The language of the conquerors going back to the Roman Empire and how language, you know, shapes people's perceptions of, of things and, it sha- and that, that influences their behavior. I was wondering, maybe speak to that. And what does decolonization actually mean then? Is it what you just expressed or... Is decolonization synonymous or mean re-indigenization? Well, decolonization, in my understanding, is really liberation. So if you you want to liberate yourself, uh, one fancy word for that would be to decolonize. It would be the opposite of colonization, which is invasion and claiming a right of domination over everyone and everything within that area that you're claiming as colonizers. And so the opposite of that, to to undo that, would be to liberate yourself from that, which would involve a very big challenge, which is uh, when our ancestors first saw those ships sailing toward the shore, they uh, did not have any understanding of the language of those strangers. So when those strangers came ashore, they had no idea what those strangers were about or what they what they were saying or what have you. And all the more uh, crazy, uh, think about the impact of, of people being set upon by strangers who are coming there and you have no understanding of their language for them to even understand why they are abusing you and killing your people and doing all the terrible things that they're doing or laying claim to your land, performing a ceremony whereby they're claiming that uh, that is now their land simply because they showed up 
And so the challenge is for the generations to go by, eventually the descendants of those ancestors end up learning the language of the colonizers, of the invaders, and begin to examine the record, the historical record, and the the books and the types of documents that are necessary to um, understand in order to really get a full picture of what was the intention to begin with on the part of those invading people. And I think that's where we are today. We're the people, the generation that has actually paid very close attention to those documents and to that historical record and coming to an understanding of this colonizer language that we're communicating in right now and having a deep insight into the real nature of that language Mm -hmm. and to understand that more more than 60% of English is derived from the language of the Roman Empire, that is from Latin. And the language of Latin is a language of domination. And the Roman Empire was one of the most formidable and horrific systems of domination to ever exist on the planet. So once we understand all that, then we can begin to put our minds together and uh, begin to strategically and tactically begin to figure out how we're going to address that and how we're going to transition beyond that, beyond those patterns of domination and dehumanization. That's the big challenge that we face. The thing is that it's not just our nations and peoples that are beset by this or being afflicted by this system. Now it's across the whole entire globe. And so the ecological systems of the planet are in collapse um, and you have the waters of the planet being so horribly poisoned, uh, the radiation, the various kinds of mining and mill tailings that have polluted uh, the land and the water. So we're, we're really in a mess. And the big question is, how do you transition it out of that mess? You certainly can't do it by repeating the same patterns that created the mess to begin with. But then where are the models of an alternative of something beneficial that can be used to replace all this craziness, the madness? That's the big challenge. And I think that to a great extent, we can look back to the patterns of our ancestors over thousands and thousands of years. Our ancestors evolved languages, cultures, spiritual traditions, uh, insights as to how life actually works why it's necessary to have a beneficial relationship with all forms of life so that all forms of life continue in perpetuity, meaning forever for all future generations, that those types of insights and understandings are waiting for people to maybe gain a type of different um, perception, a different type of behavior so that we can begin to form a better life together. But so long as we're in the grip of the domination system and the people that know how to manipulate that system to their advantage uh, for the further aggrandizement of themselves and for an increase of wealth and power on their behalf, then it's going to be very difficult. But, you know, there are all these factors and many, many more that go into the concept of decolonization, namely liberation. Steve, your thoughts on the recent announcement by the Washington Arskins to retire its mascot name and how it's getting framed as a 
part of this settler colonial cultural wars and your thoughts on that and and does the framing of the mascot issue within the context of cultural wars really distract from the larger picture right the political the economical the historical etc well the uh, washington redskins uh issue and uh, the the discontinuation of that name uh that particular campaign they're they're successful and that's that's fine that's good i think it's a mistake however to use that as a standalone issue it ought to be used as a transition into a discussion of the foundation of the entire system used against our nations and peoples and unfortunately i don't see that uh, tendency maybe i missed it somewhere but it would be great to say yeah here's the starting point to a longer conversation about the need to address the foundation of federal Indian law and policy based upon the idea that Christians have the right to land somewhere where non-Christians are existing and to establish a system of domination to use against them for all time. Mm. And that would be a real significant conversation. And what about this notion of framing uh, the mascot issue within the settler society's idea of the culture wars? Well, I mean, there's there are several ways to approach that. One of the ways to approach that is to say, yeah, there is a culture war, and it's been going on for more than five centuries against right. our nations and peoples. Right. You know, that's why they took our uh, relatives and and our as children and took them away from loved ones and parents and and aunts and uncles and grandparents and. Right and siblings and stuck them in residential schools or boarding schools and did everything they could within their power to strip them of their own languages, cultures, and spiritual traditions and replace that with some kind of American patriotism and Christianity and so forth. That's a culture war. And, and so they never talk about that culture war. They're talking about them as Americans who are somehow, they're somehow being abused. Uh, I really don't understand that that notion, that sense of, of culture war, uh, maybe they feel that, but the power structure, the overall power structure is very much humming right along, you know? Right. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of a, a glib answer, but but the, the point about the culture war going on for more than five centuries against our nations and peoples, yeah, it is and it's still going on because that's the the very nature of the foundation of their system. That somehow that conversation never really gets addressed, and I I find it most interesting that the people that do get the limelight, you have national and even global attention on the the change of the Washington Redskins name right. and the discontinuation of that of that trademark or whatever. The why, why not go ahead and use that as the jumping off point to these more foundational issues and not to say that the other one is of no importance or whatever, but use it as a jumping off point. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure why that never seems to happen. I, I think it's very strange. And, and I think part of the challenge for us as Native people is, is the matter of where are the silences? Right. What is it that's not being discussed even by our people. So, you know, uh, federal Indian law scholars that I have asked about the 1954 U.S. legal brief and about the religious and Christian terminology in that brief, the fact that it goes back to those papables and so forth, they say, oh, yeah, I read that. Well, have you ever written about it? 
oh, one of them said, oh, yeah, I've written about that. And then you go back and look at the source, and somehow that language was left out, right. even though that's the central argument of the whole legal brief. So how does that work? You know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I wanted to talk to you, right, talking about the doctrine of dominion, because it does, it, it is missing from the conversation, right, for all the reasons yeah. we've been we've been talking about. Sure. And, you know, and I wonder, too, both for indigenous and non-indigenous peoples, why the role of Christendom, if you will, or theology is excluded, marginalized, or absent in these conversations just in general. Is there something sacrosanct about it that people don't want to talk about that or or is it just not part of people's consciousness right it's or it's just part of the quote unquote the natural where people feel that yeah we just don't talk about you know religion because just simply to talk about christianity is to be offensive well you you know we'd have to be a fly on the wall to to know how to answer that question because who knows what goes into those uh decisions and the editorial rooms and and the newsrooms and so forth what gets through the the filter and what doesn't you know again the silences the moment of silence is over And that was part two of our conversation with Stephen Newcomb from the Shawnee Lenape Nations. He's a legal scholar and one of the world's foremost authorities on the doctrine of Christian discovery and Christian dominion. He's the author of Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Discovery, in which him, along with Sheldon Wolfchild in 2015, completed a documentary on the book titled The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Dominion Code. Stephen Newcomb was speaking on how the doctrine of discovery and Christian dominion relates to the recent activities of fallen statues or the removal of statues of Father Junipero Sierra throughout the state of California, the U.S. Supreme Court's McGirt decision case affirming the treaty rights of the Muscogee Creek Nation, the indigenous Black Lives Matter solidarity movement, conversations of race, plus more here on American Indian Airwaves. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Stephen Newcomb. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon star, Koopa Aina, Buffy St. Marie, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over.